Welcome to Raiders of the Lost Podcast, the ultimate film and TV podcast. We are your hosts, James and Anthony. This episode will be on Star Wars Episode 4, A New Hope. Hello, movie friends. Welcome back to the show. We're happy to be here discussing A New Hope. And we've talked about Star Wars a bunch on the show. We've even done an entire episode on the entire prequel trilogy and original trilogy. And we just decided to go solo episodes on each of them because why the heck not? We love the original trilogy so much. So every Monday for the next three weeks will be a Star Wars episode four, five, six episode. Star Wars A New Hope is arguably the best one. It started it all. It created one of the biggest phenomenons in pop and entertainment culture. We are huge fans of of what George Lucas created. I thought we had done more Star Wars content, but we actually have, look, looking back on our episode library, we haven't done that much. And I was like, oh, you're, I, I guess we haven't really touched on like the individual films at all on their own. Because there's so much to talk about. They're so dense, and it's incredible what George Lucas came up with. He spent years writing the first one, years. which ended up becoming, you know, he, he made this enormous story and these ideas, and he had to turn it into basically a three- a trilogy, which was like one act of this entire story he came up with. So that's why. And also he started with episode four, which we'll get into later on. That's like something to do with like Flash Gordon and a lot of sci-fi films. Even the Iliad from Homer starts off about halfway through in terms of the story. So it was really interesting to start with episode four. This was crazy unique. No one had ever seen this at the time when it came out in 1977. So it was just new territory. We'd seen big sci-fi films, 2001 Space Odyssey, and obviously stories like Dune, Frank Herbert, and Asimov, Isaac Asimov with Foundation. So these ideas in the sci-fi realm were, were still fresh, but in terms of major motion picture entertainment, it was new. Yeah, nothing like this had been done before. And I mean, today's film and TV landscape is a testament to the brand and the world that George Lucas created and just how much love there still is for it. And I feel like right now there's more love for Star Wars than ever before. And I mean, yes, Star Wars in the 70s and 80s made a lot of money at the box office, but like it's not like everyone was had merch um, nowadays. You online and you know, go to conventions and just like the people's presence on social media, like there is an insane amount of love for Star Wars. Uh, which I'm sure, I mean, Lucas must be, like, very happy that uh, this thing that he created touched the culture in such a huge way. Very few things, especially in terms of storytelling, have ever really done this in this capacity. And it seems like there's no slowing down the Star Wars brand to this day. You know, it's a perfect example to show how much people are more obsessed with than ever before is if, remember that 70s show? Yes. All these characters, Eric is the only one that is obsessed with like Star Wars. like a super dorky and thing. And loves Star Wars. Yeah. But if you made that show modern era, not only would all the kids be obsessed with Star Wars, all the teenagers, but so would all the parents, yeah. all the friends. Everyone would be into Star Wars. They would think Eric's the cool. He'd be like the coolest kid he in the would, house. Yeah. So it's kind of all be cosplayers it's, yeah. it's so funny how it's now it's like so in vogue and common to love star wars where it used to be kind of a niche thing not as niche as star trek but it still now has become the biggest phenomenon in entertainment probably absolutely now in terms of my first experience with star wars we we actually we didn't really grow up watching them too much uh we did have them but we didn't watch them like all the time and we weren't like i would say we grew up with the prequels loving the prequels and then I got into the originals, I'd say, when I was older, like late teens is when I really started watching them. 
and getting into them. But I do remember my first ever experience with Star Wars was in kindergarten. And I remember we were doing show and tell who we went to elementary school with. He brought in like this huge booklet of Star Wars, a new hope and of the entire original trilogy, uh, empire and return. And had like all this concept art and like these cool storyboards. And, uh, he had like the VHSs and, and I remember he was show, it was like show and tell, and that was he was like his favorite thing. And I remember looking at all this like this these cool images and uh, in this book and all these crazy this crazy art. And I was like, wow, what is this? This is so wild. Uh, and then I remember clearly one of the first major experiences I had watching Star Wars was our mom took us to see, I believe it was Empire in a re-release in 1997 in theaters. And that was really, really crazy to see in theaters. And, you know, our older brothers weren't really super into Star Wars. So it, I didn't really get into it until I was, like, in my teens, I want to say. But like you said, the prequel trilogy we loved so much. But when I started getting into the originals, that's where I really grew, grew a huge love for Star Wars. I think that's where a lot of people do now. Star Wars Episode Four: New Hope came out came out in 1977 Rotten Tomatoes has this at 93% IMDb is an 8.6 and I'm, I have a bunch of great info that I got from myneatstuff.com and Star Wars fandom because there's so much to talk about just with how Lucas came up with the story how the production went because this was you know they're revolutionizing production not even just the practical effects and set building on such a low low budget but also when he started ilm industrial light and magic they're basically like making it up as they went in terms of graphics and effects and they were just on like a basically a year-long schedule that they had to condense down to six months of work so like they were just like working their butts off to create these visual effects that were being done for the first time in the history of filmmaking so it was really groundbreaking experience for the filmmakers and for the film community in general. So Lucas began writing the story for Star Wars in 1973, right after around when he finished American Graffiti. And uh, he came up with an original idea. And then he was working eight hours a day, five days a week, taking small notes, inventing odd names, and assigning them possible characterizations. Lucas then began writing a 13-page treatment called The Star Wars on April 17th, 1973, which had thematic parallels with Akira Kurosawa's, Akira Kurosawa's 1958 The Hidden Fortress. Of course, we all know Lucas was turned down by every freaking studio he pitched this treatment to. After Walt Disney Productions rejected the project, he Ironic. Pers- <laughs> Ironically, <laughs> they just bought everything. Oh, yeah. Can we have that, actually? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because they bought it before they bought 20th Century Studios because this was a 20th Century Studios before Lucas bought it. Yeah, it, it was out. Fox. It was built. It built Fox. Uh, he pursued Alan Ladd Jr., the new head of 20th Century Fox, and in June 1973 completed a deal to write and direct the film. Although Ladd did not grasp the technical side of the project, he was like, what is this movie? I trust you, George Lucas. You're super intelligent. You're very talented. I loved your work so far. He gave him $150,000 to write and direct Star Wars. By May 1974, he had expanded the film treatment into a rough draft screenplay, adding elements such as the Sith, the Death Star, and a general by the name of Anakin, <laughs> by the name of Anakin Starkiller. He changed Starkiller to an adolescent boy later on in more drafts. Lucas completed the second draft of Star Wars in January 1975, making heavy simplifications and introducing the young hero on a farm as Luke's star killer. Anakin became Luke's father, a wise Jedi Knight. The Force was also introduced, a mystical energy field. The second draft had some differences from the final version in the characters and relationships. For example, Luke had several brothers as well as his father, who appears in a minor role at the end of the film. The script became more of a fairy tale quest as opposed to the action adventure of the previous versions. 
Then, a third draft dated August 1st, 1975, was titled The Star Wars from the Adventures of Luke Starkiller. This third draft had almost had most of the elements of the final plot with only some differences in characters and settings. The draft character characterized Luke as an only child with his father already dead, replacing him with a substitute named Kent Ben Kenobi. The script would be rewritten for the fourth and final draft on January 1st, 1976, known as The Adventures of Luke Starkiller, as taken from the journals of the Wills. Saga 1, The Star Wars. That was the title. That's a lot. That was the title. Lucas worked with his friends Gloria Katz and Willard Hook to revise the fourth draft into final pre-production and in 20th Century Fox approved a budget of $8.25 million. That's it. Uh, and the positive reception of American Graffiti afforded Lucas the leverage necessary to renegotiate his deal with, uh, with Alan Ladd Jr. and request the sequel rights to the film. And for Lucas, this deal protected Star Wars' unwritten segments and most of the merchandising profits. He finished his final script when they were going into production and filming in March 1976 as they were starting to film. Now, there were seven original titles for Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. They were, first, The Journal of the Wills, which was a two-page synopsis. Adventures of Starkiller, Episode One: The Star Wars, his 13-page treatment. The Star Wars from the Adventures of Luke Starkiller, his first script. Adventures of Luke Starkiller, as taken from the Journal of the Wills Saga 1, The Star Wars, the next script. The Star Wars, Star Wars, and then the final title, which was changed during production, Star Wars Episode 4, A New Hope. It's a lot. <laughs> it's really fascinating, the, uh, the changes in story and things that seem so legendary now they could have been so different although i did i found this interview uh because there's there's debate about why he changed the title to a new hope episode four obviously after the release he there's debate like did he start that way because he couldn't film the other two but then uh there's also the idea that he didn't really plan it to be the third and i mean the the fourth in nine movies and that as he as the first one came out, then he came up with the concept of the entire overarching nine film. So you mean why he started at episode four? Yeah, exactly. And I found this interview where um, in 2010, he sent Damon Lindelof and Carlton Cuse, uh, executive producers of the show Lost, a letter congratulating them on the show's ending and letting them in on uh, maybe on some secrets of his about his development of the Star Wars film franchise. He said, quote, don't tell anyone, but when Star Wars first came out, I didn't know where it was going either. The trick is to pretend you've planned the whole thing out in advance, throw in some father issues and references to other stories. Let's call them homages, and you've got a series. So it's 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 possible that episode, it might have just been like this was his first story, and then as he was making it or as it was released, he might have come up with, oh, maybe this is the fourth episode in a nine-episode uh, arc. Well, the cool thing about it is if you start at four in the middle, then the audience is just so curious as to what happened before and then yeah. what's going to come after. Like we said, like I said earlier, Homer's Iliad, that starts, you know, on his son's quest to come find him. It doesn't start from the beginning of of when he leaves on his odyssey. It's when start- he leaves Athens. Yeah, yeah, so it starts with his son gathering up people to go find his father who's missing. Yeah. So, and also Flash Gordon, it was similar to not starting in the beginning. So I think when you start in the middle... It's really interesting for a I fan love it. Base. Yeah, and it just so, piques so many curiosities of like what else is there. It intru- it automatically shows you that there's a dense universe, a dense world in this lore that is just waiting to be explored. And its success is still unparalleled, I think, to this day because the entire property 
of Star Wars and its success in terms of not just the film's releases, but factor in VHS purchases, rentals, DVD, and then Blu-ray sales, now streaming rentals. Uh, I don't think there might. I don't think there is a more successful franchise overall. And but the initial success of A New Hope was pretty unparalleled. It was, it was the first movie to make over three hundred million dollars domestically at the box office. That's L, that's a lot domestically back then. It was also the first movie to cross five hundred million worldwide in its initial release. Now there are movies that made more than that, but they were re-released over and over again, like Gone with the Wind. So you can't really qualify that in terms of an initial release. Um, the second most uh, attended movie of all time in North America, having sold an estimated 178 million tickets. To put that into perspective, uh, a movie that is the, the most successful movies these days, uh, they're selling 100 million tickets. Uh, even like the biggest movies of like the last decade, 100 million, 110 million tickets. So nothing even coming out today is that close to even coming in the same stratosphere of, as 178 million tickets sold, which is a real... Um, example of how successful the film was and obviously that's a lot of rewatches of people but it wasn't re-released it, it, it sold that many tickets if you compare it to gone with the wind which is number one with 202 million tickets sold that's because it was released a bunch of times also let's realize that more movies come out every year yeah now. but gone with the wind it was like one of the only thing to see for a while <laughs> but also to the these days which is even more impressive even in the 70s even in 78 to sell that many tickets is there were f much fewer theaters to go to. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Now there's about 5,200 theaters in America for a wide release, but back then we're talking maybe 1,000 theaters, maybe 2,000. Star possible. Wars opened up to 32 theaters. Yeah. That's all it opened up in. Yeah, so what's interesting is the the theater, like nobody really believed in the film when it came, when it was finished, um, and movie theaters, like you said, 32, you said? 32. 32 agreed to, watch, to, view, to show it, and then... Fox actually had to like blackmail movie theaters into showing the film. They they said that if you don't show Star Wars, you can't release this other film of ours that stu that the theaters were anticipating to be a big hit for them. So they kind of blackmailed uh, theater owners into showing Star Wars because nobody really thought it would make an money. And also 20th Century Fox, they almost sold the rights to Star Wars before it was released because they were um, falling into bankruptcy. And they were going to use it as like a tax write-off and, and sell the rights to Star Wars so that they could actually make some money off of their investment. Luckily, they decided uh, to stick with the film. And then the the massive success of Star Wars saved 20th Century Fox from falling into bankruptcy. So if it wasn't for Star Wars, Fox wouldn't be a major studio that we see to this day. So uh, they pretty much owe everything to George Lucas's success. And he had the original budget of $8.2 million, but that was actually bumped up to three extra $3 million. He ended up with a final budget of $11 million. Worldwide gross was $775 million at the global box office Jeez. in 1977. They have also had re-releases since then as well, so it's not completely all in that year. Like Anthony said, we saw this in a re-release, or one of them in a re-release. This was re-released for three weeks the year after it came out. So, But still, for that big of a box office in 1977, that is absolutely absurd. And the design of the world was so integral to this. It was so immersive. And it's incredible what they did on such a small budget. So George Lucas, he recruited a lot of conceptual designers, including Colin Cantwell, who worked on 2001 A Space Odyssey, which came out in 1968. Now, that film is pristine. You know, we never really, no one ever seen miniature work like that done since Metropolis, probably. That kind of level, that kind of game-changing production. And to conceptualize the initial spacecraft models, 
Alex Tavalaris had to create the preliminary conceptual storyboard sketches of early scripts, and Ralph McQuarrie was used to visualize the characters, costumes, props, and scenery. McQuarrie's pre-production paintings of certain scenes from Lucas's early screenplay drafts helped 20th Century Fox visualize the film during his 13 treatment pitch, which positively influenced influenced their decision to fund the project that artwork is really terrific uh, it's really beautiful what Macquarie did and you can see that uh, on paper back then imagine reading the screenplay as a studio exec and you're like <laughs> what is going on but to actually see it visualized in, in art by Macquarie I'm, sh I'm sure that was really the the nail in the coffin for Lucas getting it the the production underway and for Fox to a greenlighting it. And also what's interesting is McCory actually came up with that, the breathing apparatus for Darth Vader because it wasn't written in the script that he would have like a breathing apparatus or helmet like that. But McCory envisioned since he walks from a spaceship uh, across like an open area, he must have some, he needs to have a breathing apparatus to survive. So that's actually where the first image of Darth Vader wearing his, his breathing suit actually came into being because of McCory. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. And you know, we're huge fans of production design. We love what someone like Patrice Vermette's doing with the Dune franchise and all the work he does with Denis Villeneuve. And we, we think it's such an underrated aspect of filmmaking is production design, set design. And so this production design really had three people. They had John Barry, Leslie Dilley, and Roger Christian. Lucas, Lucas described Star Wars in the production design as used future the concepts of the production designers which in which all devices ships and buildings looked aged and dirty instead of following the traditional sleekness and futuristic architecture of science fiction films that came before it like for example 2001 a space odyssey everything is almost sterile clean and pristine and beautiful this actually makes it look more authentic and inhabited and used and barry said that the director wants to make it look like it's shot on location on your average everyday death star or must easily spaceport or local cantina lucas believed that what is required for true credibility is a used future opposing the interpretation of future in most futuristic movies that always looks new and clean and shiny christian supported lucas's vision saying all science fiction before is very plastic and stupid uniforms and flash gordon stuff nothing was new george was going right against that and the production of these miniatures i mean it had been done in and matte paintings and rotoscoping it had been done so well before but uh, what Lucas performed this basically style of filmmaking with these incredible action sequences, especially the finale with the uh, the space battle, um, which had I mean in the opening space battle, yeah, he opens this up, yeah, which had never happened before, and it's 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 really simple how they did it, but it just takes a lot of care and it takes a lot of work. Uh, it's so lo-fi, it's hard to believe that this is how it used to be done, um, just com in combining matte paintings. With with miniatures and rotoscoping um, light onto the image, onto the actual film strip, and combining multiple frames uh, of a, of a shot to create one frame, 
and then animated. It's basically kind of like a form of stop motion, but on the film strip. Uh, it's really incredible. Then the final space battle is really terrific, and one of my favorite shots of it's probably my favorite shot of the entire Star Wars um, series is uh, in the final battle when one of the, one of the, one of the fighters goes dives into that tunnel. Um, what happened? It's it's the shot that you see nowadays. It, it's like you don't even think about it. It's just so easy to do in comparison. But it's this really terrific shot where he took a matte painting. And then use the camera to pan, to push forward and zoom in on it at a kind of like a, a a tilted angle, and it makes it look like POV of we're flying towards it. And then he quickly meshed it together in an edit with the actual miniature moving into that. And it's a, an amazing shot when you realize how they did it, because now we nowadays we see shots like that all the time. But the, the fact that so much care and so much actual physical work went into creating. Even a shot like that, that nowadays we take for granted, it shows you just how much like love was poured into this film and how much you know just ingenuity and craftsmanship was done. It's not CGI. Nothing. There's no such thing as CGI back then. It's all practical. It's all either painted or built, or even just like kind of like put onto a film strip. And that's really something magical about it. It's the magic of, of filmmaking. And the attention to detail is absurd. And speaking of the ships and the sets, the designers started working with Lucas before Star Wars was even approved by 20th Century Fox. For four to five months in a studio in Kensal Rise, England, they attempted to plan the creation of the props and sets with virtually no money. They were basically going off of what George Lucas had made off of American Graffiti, but that clearly was not enough because, like I said, they didn't even have approval from the script to actually go ahead making the film with a budget. They could not afford to dress the sets, so Roger Christian was forced to use unconventional methods and materials to achieve the desired looks. He suggested that Lucas use scrap in making the dressings, and the director agreed. Christian said, I've always had this idea. I used to do it with models when I was a kid. I'd stick things on them and we make things look old. According to Christian, the Millennium Falcon set was the most difficult to build. Christian wanted the interior of the Falcon to look like that of a submarine. He found scrap airplane metal that no one wanted in those days and bought them. He began his creation process by, break by breaking down jet engines into scrap pieces, giving him the chance to stick it to the sets in specific ways. It took him several weeks just to finish the chest sets in the hold of the Millennium <laughs> Falcon. The garbage compactor was also pretty hard, he said, because... I knew I had actors in there and the walls had to come in and they had to be in dirty water and I had to get stuff that would be light enough so it wouldn't hurt them but also not bobbing around. Obviously, you can tell yeah. everything in there is pretty yeah. much foam. A total of 30 sets consisting of planets, starships, caves, control rooms, cantinas, and the Death Star quarters were created. All of the nine sound stages at Elstree were used to accommodate them. The massive Rebel hangar set was housed at a second sound stage at Shepardson Studios. The stage is the largest in Europe. That and also, so you, the UK is known for having massive studio space. Like Leavesden Studios is where Bond and the Harry Potters are filmed, so they just have massive spaces to film. And the hangar sequence, I think, especially in this one, and especially in the second one, when the, you see the Emperor for the first time in person, just the sheer scale of it is really impressive. And that design of the hangars, it's 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 such a a must have when you watch a Star Wars film is to see a giant hangar where ships come in and where you see rows and rows of, of stormtroopers and, and uh, elite forces. So the hangars, I think, is a really special set to the to the Star Wars world. But obviously, Millennium Falcon is probably the most legendary set in the entire series. And 
it's it was nice in Force Awakens when when Chewie and Han walk back inside and he's like Chewie, we're home. <laughs> it was it was very sweet. It was great to see. Yeah. It, Star Wars, you know, it has a ton of influences. Flash Gordon, obviously. Foundation, like we said earlier, the book by Isaac Asimov, which actually just got turned into a TV series by Apple a few years ago. Uh, Dune by Frank Herbert. Uh, Frank Herbert actually almost, he said he had to... How many times is James going to say Dune in this episode? He was quoted saying, (laughs) I'm going to try very hard not to sue... Herbert told an Oregon newspaper back in the 1970s because there are a lot of elements of Star Wars that are very the voice. reminiscent <laughs> of Star Wars. The sand, the worms, the messiah. Spice trader. Spice, all sorts of stuff. But it is what it is. You know, he took inspiration. He also took a ton of inspiration from Akira Kurosawa movies, Seven Samurai, and Fortress for sure. And also something that, a, a source that people rarely mention is the Princess of Mars Edgar Rice Burroughs' novel, um, which is was adapted as John Carter of Mars by Disney. And that is... Is it Prince or Princess? Princess of Mars. Gotcha. Because um, the princesses run the lead characters. I've never read it, but you're always telling me to. Yeah, you. I mean, you would, you would friggin' love it, man. You would eat it up. <laughs> you would read the entire series, and I know you would. You, would, you should get it. I'm not sure if I... I think I read that on a Kindle, all of them. Um, but it's, it's really amazing. Uh, and it was a major inspiration. Uh, intergalactic travel... Um, that George Lucas, it was it was written in like 1910s, and it, it's unbelievable what that guy, the guy's imagination. And then there's also aside from the Japanese influences, definitely Chinese influences in terms of the idea of ki, uh, and, and internal energy people have within themselves it can give them power or balance and concentration. Obviously tied to the idea of the Force, which is a power that people can uh, basically. We concentra- concentrate within themselves and can use to create their special abilities. So key is definitely an influence on the force as well. Yeah, definitely. I agree with that. It's like kind of like how they get their powers in Dragon Ball Z. Exactly. Same kind of concept. Kame. Kame. What's it called? The spirit bomb in that show? Spirit bomb, yeah. Also, let's talk about other aspects of the production specifically. Hold on. I got to take this helmet off. I can't see anything. It's getting really hot. I don't know if anyone's watching, but I've been wearing a Star Wars helmet this entire time. And yeah, you look a little flush. Whew, getting a little toasty in there. Let me get my headphones on because now I can see. I was looking through a yellow visor the entire time. Ooh, now I can hear myself with my headphones on. It's weird without the headphones it on. It is weird. It? It's almost like you're not on the episode. You can't really get in the zone. <laughs> but anyway, so more elements of the production that I would love to talk about specifically with the sound design. Now, the sound design was done by the legendary Ben Burt, who's also done a bunch of Spielberg movies. So he did Star Wars, the Indiana Jones series, E.T., Wally. He actually voiced Wally. He did the new Star Trek films. He's responsible for creating many of the iconic sound effects heard in the Star Wars franchise. He's one of those early kind of sound people that kind of just pioneered the, the craft, but also the, the concept of a sound designer mm-hmm. in terms of it being like, a specific a profession rather than just being different departments of sound. He kind of just com- was one of those early pioneers that combined it into one sort of job or one head of head of the department. He did the voice for R2-D2. He created the lightsaber hum, the whoosh effect. The famous lightsaber buzzing whoosh was made by blending the hum of a 35-millimeter projector and passing a broken microphone cable by the tubes of an old TV set. He also was a huge pioneer and popularized the Wilhelm scream, 
which I think is in pretty much every movie he's ever done the sound for. For Chewbacca's growls, Burt recorded and combined sounds made by dogs, bears, lions, and tigers, and walruses to create phrases and sentences. Lucas and Burt created the robotic voice of R2-D2 by filtering their voices through an electronic synthesizer. Synthesizer, sorry. Darth Vader's breathing was achieved by Burt breathing into the mask of a scuba regulator implanted with a microphone. His IMAX film on the history of special effects, Anything Can Happen, was nominated for an Oscar for Best Short Subject. He's also an editor and edited the Star Wars prequel trilogy, fun fact. So this guy, Ben Burt, created, helped create all these incredible sound effects, the blasters, the pistols, the ship effects. So so groundbreaking when it comes to sound design. Ben Burt is a legend. And obviously so, many, so much inspiration is drawn from this movie for sound design. And the Wilhelm Scream is actually used in so many movies. It's over like a hundred. It's over a thousand. It's a is thousand. It, is it really? Thousands of movies. And it's it's a reference and nod to that. It's the most famous sound effect ever you ever created, I would say, because it actually has like a name, the Wilhelm Scream. And it goes like... <laughs> I love the one that's in uh, the two towers when he's yeah, jumping yeah. off the. Yeah, yeah. Peter Jackson used it in all of them. <laughs> yeah, it's great. And also, I, I mean, the design of like the lightsabers, it was it's terrific. And uh, the hilt of the lightsaber given to Luke was it, they were made from like just everyday household items. And for example, these lightsabers in this film, they're made from a camera flash tube with rubber grips and a loop attached to the base. Vader's saber is made. Uh, from a flash gun and windshield wipers for the grips. Uh, Obi-Wan's is made using a flash gun and part of a hand grenade. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, purchases for these flash tubes skyrocketed because a lot of people wanted to make them on their own. Uh, So many materials made uh, by Roger Christian, the production designer, he sourced from junk piles and, and just created these amazing props. Because the thing is, like, this world doesn't exist, so... Uh, you have pretty much free reign to be as creative as possible. And the lo-fi aspect, the used aspect that Lucas had intended for uh, for the production suited the ability to be able to just source from anywhere and just make these high-tech products out of knickknacks that people will use on Earth. And it's really brilliant. It's a terrific team of artists who created this film. And, I mean, really, I don't think anything has really been produced like this before i mean since then and and when you look at the scale of the invention in this film uh, because you could say cgi was used by multiple companies in many films developing it but in terms of like one movie really pioneering so much it's i, I can't think of another film that has and for the lightsabers the effect of them glowing was actually created with front projection and then layered with rotoscoping to give a distinct color so each person each artist had actually go in each frame of the film to actually like paint basically on the outlines of the swords that they were playing with and fighting with took a lot of time a hell of a lot of time for sure <laughs> definitely like a microscope what's also really fascinating about this film is even lucas didn't think it would be a success and there's this great story where so spielberg well first of all spielberg george lucas francis ford coppola and Brian De Palma. De Palma. And Scorsese, they're all buds. They're all buds, but those four, they went to school in USC. Scorsese uh, went to NYU. And then Scorsese started hanging out with them like in the 70s. But a lot of these four guys, they grew up knowing each other in their teens and early 20s. And it's really strange. It's crazy to think that 
so many of the most influential filmmakers were like a friend crew back in the day. Just walking around the studios, yeah. to, like messing around. It's wild. It's wild. Getting stuck inside Bruce the Shark for yeah. the Jaws. And at USC, there's actually like two buildings, the George Lucas building, the Steven Spielberg building that they bought, that they paid for, and they're right next to each other. It's it's crazy. But uh, since they were great friends with each other, once George finished A New Hope, he visited the set of Close Encounters while Spielberg was making that. And Spielberg's already like top of the top of filmmakers in America, like – He's the guy in this production. It couldn't be more different from Star Wars where he has all the money he needs. He knows what he's doing already. He's got a complete control of like everything. And Lucas was so impressed with uh, the scene they were filming. I believe it was one of the sequences of the scientists communicating with the aliens. And so it was a, that's a huge set if you're familiar with it. It's a giant set. And that's compared to Jaws in 1975, yeah. which was a mess. Yeah, exactly. And so Lucas was so impressed with this set and the footage they were getting. And he felt so insecure about Star Wars that in an effort to, like, I guess, save his finances, he made this bet with Spielberg uh, of which film would be more successful. And because he, he thought Close Encounters was going to be a huge hit, which it was. Close Encounters made a ton of money. And, but Spielberg, he thought Star Wars was going to be the most successful movie of all time when Spielberg, when Lucas showed it to him and a few other friends privately. And Sp- Spielberg in- immediately saw the potential, but Lucas did not in terms of monetized, uh, monetized box offices. And so they made this bet where they both traded 2.5% of the gross of either film. And so Spielberg... Uh, and not just gross, like all time. Yeah, all, just per- ownership. Ownership. Or, so... Spielberg was given 2.5% of Star Wars, and then Lucas was given 2.5% of Close Encounters. And this was like, I guess, Lucas's way of giving himself like a, a suit of armor for the failure of his upcoming film. And then, uh, to his surprise, Star Wars became the most successful movie of all time at that point. And Spielberg, to this day, is still raking in the the dough. Still has 2.5%. Yeah, he made $40 million on its initial box office run Spielberg did off of Star Wars. And then he's still just like profiting off of it. It's crazy. It's wild. And then the other major decision that Lucas made was that uh, in order to save on the production budget, he made this deal with Fox of give me ownership of the merchandise and I'll I'll take a small fee for directing. So instead of getting paid like half a million dollars for directing the project, he instead got paid much less than that and got control of the ownership. And the reason why Fox gave him the rights to the merchandise ownership was because a film that they had made previously, which they hate, made a huge mar- merchandise campaign for, flopped and they made nothing off of the merchandise. And so they thought merchandising a movie was a, a dead avenue. And not a way to make any kind of revenue. So they were like, yeah. They were like, oh, Lucas doesn't want to get paid. He wants the merchandise rights. toys. What an idiot. I'm sure they were like, this guy, yeah, whatever you want, George. So I'm sure they thought that they were. They were probably getting one on him. Yeah, they were getting, oh, yeah, we're only going to pay you like 100000 to make a movie. Yeah, no problem. Sounds great. And unbeknownst to them, Lucas saw the merchandising potential. And that's really where he made all of his money was from the merchandising sales of Star Wars because he owned until he sold everything to Disney, he owned outright the merchandise of Star Wars. My boy's wicked smart. So he made billions off of it. And George Lucas's struggles to get Star Wars off the ground have been well documented from production delays to budgetary compromises. So high were his stress levels that at one point he believed he was having a heart attack. 
after a trip to the doctor, he was diagnosed with exhaustion and abnormally high blood pressure. The arduous production schedule meant that Lucas wasn't able to take the prolonged rest that the doctor prescribed. The good news is that he finally took some rest when it was premiering at the box office and to audiences. He went on vacation with his buddy Steven Spielberg to Hawaii. And they actually spent the time coming up with a new idea for a new project called Indiana Jones. And they soon titled it Raiders of the Lost Ark. And they ended up making that together. And they they made the second one together. And George Lucas is a producer on all of them. And the connection to Spielberg was actually vital to Star Wars' success. Because guess who Spielberg introduced him to? Uh, Want to say that again? Guess who Spielberg introduced George Lucas to? Harrison Ford. John Williams. John Williams. Oh, J-Dubs. 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 Obviously, probably one of the most essential parts of franchise. So Lucas planned to have this movie scored with classical music already made, like Stanley Kubrick's 2001. That was his initial idea. Oh, he wanted so actual other comp- yeah, composers' so just, music? Yeah, just old music that he was going to throw in. And what do you want? John Williams to just create, basically create the set list? Well, no, no, <laughs> no he didn't even, this was before J-Dubs was involved. Gotcha. So that was his initial plan, to just put in classical music. And then... Spielberg introduced the two of them. And John Williams obviously crafted one of the greatest scores of all time. They used He used that as that music he had in mind as inspiration for John Williams. But obviously John Williams made something wholly unique and that had never been heard before. I think hearing the fanfare for the first time for audiences and theaters must have just been absolutely wild. To see that as the text scroll was going, to hear that the amazing brass... And Williams is such a, a genius composer with the complexity of his writing, how he has so much going on that seems balanced. It seems like chaotic, but still it's so it's so fine-tuned. There's really no one that's ever made music like him. And it really created the DNA for Star Wars. Uh, oftentimes, music can be the most important aspect to a, a picture, and can oftentimes make or break a picture. And for Star Wars, I'm not sure, and I'm sure Lucas would agree, it would have ever been the same if it had been done by a different composer. I completely agree. There's something about just the opening of every Star Wars with the same... It's the most recognizable music probably in the history of entertainment, maybe in the history of music. Everyone around the world that has seen movies or has access to them, if they are fortunate enough to do that, everyone knows Star Wars. It's crazy. Mm. We all can think of it. Not even just the music, but the characters and the story, but the music, it's just... It's it's probably some of the best work that John Williams has done. I think, like, Chamber of Secrets and Sorcerer's Stone are also up there in terms of his career, like, some of the best work that is not just incredible writing and, and music, but it's just so integral and essential to telling the story into getting us to know the characters and taking us on the space odyssey but man star wars the music is so so important and incredible and fun fact about the music is uh the reason why so 20th century fox their logo fanfare sound familiar yes they're both in d but it's based on john williams used so george loved the music so much that he asked john williams to make a, a piece to accompany the opening during the 20th Century Fox logo. So that's where the 20th Century Fox famous music came from. It's also, so the 20th Century Fox music was already 
done. They already had it, but they did it with Star Wars so that it was an easy transition yeah. to the music for mm -hmm. for audiences because they'd hear the dun 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 so it was, it was seamless. I'm, I'm not sure if it was already. I think that Jay John Williams made it for the stuff. I think they they changed it and updated it. For really? That. I you think, think so. Someone fact check us on that. See yeah, who, fact see check who's us. correct on that. It seems like it's so Star Warsy. I'm pretty sure they already had it, and he just wanted it to be like a seamless lubricated transition. <laughs> <laughs> lube up, J Dubs. John Williams, can you lube, lube the, it up? No, lube the audience up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, I think that's why. Speaking of the opening crawl. And, and going back to <laughs> these these four filmmakers bumping around the studios in Burbank and Glendale back in the 1970s. So for the film's opening crawl, Lucas originally wrote a composition consisting of six paragraphs with four sentences each. He said the crawl is such a hard thing because you have to be careful that you're not using too many words that people don't understand. It's like a poem. Lucas showed this ridiculously long draft to his friend, director Brian De Palma, who I think is the one that got stuck inside Jaws' mouth. Bruce's yes, mouth. Yes, yeah. When they he messing, damaged it. When they were messing yeah. around. Who I would love to know like what they were doing. So I should make a movie about them just that night. The four directors <laughs> bouncing around the studio. Brian De Palma is freaking awesome. He's I so love, cool. I love that his guy. His movies are amazing. Oh, my God. We got to awesome. do some movies on him, some of his movies. And so he told him, the crawl at the beginning looks like it was written on a driveway. It goes on forever. It's gibberish. Lucas recounted that De Palma said the first time he saw it, George, you're out of your mind. Let me sit down and rewrite this for you. De Palma helped to edit the text into the form that is used in the film. So thanks to Brian De Palma, it's just three paragraphs. Yeah, and the way they filmed it was they actually created these... These panels, these black panels with the yellow font on it, and they just, they actually did film them. It wasn't animation. It was actually photographed, which is very cool. These are all really created. And you, there's no Star Wars movie without, it doesn't feel like a Star Wars movie without the text crawl, I think. It, it, not at all. Yeah. But I like how the other Star Wars projects don't do it. Like when they don't do it in Rogue One, they didn't, I yeah, like that. They didn't need it for Solo. They don't, yeah, they don't do not, it for those, yeah. which I like because it, it they needed to like take a break from that from the original, well not the original trilogy, but the original. <laughs> what do you what do you call a trilogy of like nine? But like the word for nine nineogy or no 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 knowledge no the nine series ninology. Anyways, back now going on to special effects. So industrial light and magic was used and did the effects on this film. So in 1975, <laughs> 1975, Lucas he Sports, birthed it. He birthed his own <laughs> visual effects company, Industrial Light Magic, ILM, after discovering that 20th Century Fox's visual effects department had been disbanded. ILM began to work on Star Wars in a warehouse in Van Nuys, California. We used to live right near there. Most of the visual, visual effects used pioneering digital motion control photography developed by John Dijkstra. <laughs> Sorry. That's his name. That's a funny name. Sorry, John. Say it again. John Dijkstra. <laughs> and his team, which created the illusion of size by employing small models and slowly moving cameras. I love that. I love it too, man. And also, like, these, <laughs> these miniatures, they're not miniature. They're not like tiny. They're, they're not like big. they're not like the Lego thing you have right there. These are these are big they're not they're they're large they're several feet wide or long and they're there's they they're able to they don't have to be tiny to film them you can film them like a ship that's like seven feet like obviously not that big but like six feet long with a black background and then you put that into the 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 film 
of the next shot, and you're able to add the the reason why they need to be that big is to be able to add believable detail. If you make the, if you make them really miniature, you can't add the detail. That's like so miniature work. I think. I don't know. I see some stuff on Instagram. People <laughs> make some crazy stuff out there. Now I know. I'm kidding. On a phone, it looks cool, um, but blow that stuff up on a big screen. Bro, I saw a video the other day. This uh, guy, there's a guy. I know the guy. He, he yeah. makes it. No, you don't even know what I'm gonna say. Okay. He makes incredible sculptures out of pencils. The oh, lead from cool. pencils. It's beautiful. That's but amazing. you need a microscope to do it. Anyways, uh-huh. I'm just busting your chops. But, but so miniatures, they're not miniature. They're just they're still very large things, and so. That's why they're able to, you know, light them however they want in these rooms. It's often rooms back then with just black backgrounds, and and that's how they get a lot of the planets filmed. That's how they get all the spaceships filmed. The miniature work is actually quite large, which is might be surprising for a lot of people. And that's why Rogue One, even though it's CGI, the giant ships in that film, they look so good and so authentic to the original trilogy that because they based the CGI in the development of these these art pieces of art of the ships off the miniatures so that's why they look authentic to the original trilogy and they look so that's my favorite part of rogue one is all the shots of the ships in space it's really impressive it and really they, he, they he filmed them in the same way uh it's not flashy it's not like fast moving it's just like watching these gigantic things just like slowly move across the black space of the galaxy it's just terrific although one thing that wouldn't be in space is like the sound of lasers and explosions true, true. so that's not true. like neil degrasse, or explosions neil degrasse tyson probably can't watch star wars because he gets so <laughs> upset about it because of how authentic it is to reality or lightsabers i mean why is why is the saber stop because because man <laughs> I've also seen videos of people that are, like, inventing lightsabers. It's absolutely crazy. Uh, They're, like, pretty close. It's a genius idea, man. But, like, it seems like a really dangerous experiment to get them going. Well, I mean, it's so, like, such a dangerous tool. You gotta (laughs) accidentally burn something or slice something What, if you have a lightsaber? Well, if you're not in tune with the Force, then, yeah, that's the the whole point of mastering Mm. the Force and being a Jedi is part of being able to use a lightsaber is mastering the force yeah. and using the force to do it. Otherwise, like you said, you would chop your arm off yeah, every but, single time. But I think the sabers were a genius concept by Lucas, and obviously he's he's tying it to samurai, samurai sword battling. Uh, but it's just the idea of this this laser sword. It is so amazing, and to this day, it's still my, one of my favorite parts of Star Wars, just having the lightsaber battles. There's something really special about that weapon. It could it, it could be the best weapon ever in movies. I mean, I can't think of anything that's just like really tops the lightsaber. And even as a kid, it was so fascinating. And even as an adult, it's just like it feels like a, such a genius concept. And it's obvious. It seems obvious too for a future society in which these Jedi knights they don't battle. They don't need to fight with guns. Or arms of that kind because they have a physical weapon that they can hold that can both defend themselves from these laser beam attacks, shooting attacks, and also blasters. They can use blasters they can use to fight as well. It's just a genius idea. I don't know, man. Hattori Hanzo's swords are pretty lit. A lightsaber would burn right through it, though. <laughs> <laughs> Not even close. <laughs> I'm just saying they're cool. No, 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 no. <laughs> you had to throw in a reference. I love Hattori Anzo. Now, principal photography was immediate, immediately delayed when they started production of this film really? right away. So production began in March, March 22nd, 1976 in the Tunisian desert, the scenes of Tatooine. 
The project faced several problems immediately. They fell behind schedule in the first week of shooting due to malfunctioning props and electronic breakdowns. Moreover, a rare Tunisian rainstorm struck the country, which further disrupted filming. And basically, you couldn't see anything in front of your faces. And George Lucas tried to like create filtration devices to be able to film and make it okay, but the studio ended up getting control of the situation from the cinematographer as well and so they end up having to wait it out and they were just delayed from the get-go there are also a bunch of deleted scenes from star wars and new hope like we've talked about before there's a great scene that i think you can find on youtube right where yeah. luke, luke skywalker yeah, on skywalkers using binoculars from tatooine to look up into the sky at, at the space battle which is really cool and the most significant material that was cut in the series of the film basically is a bunch of scenes introducing introducing luke skywalker besides that um he has a couple scenes where he's with his friends. It's like his everyday life on Tatooine with his aunt and uncle. They also introduce other characters like Biggs Darklighter. Luke's closest, closest <laughs> friend who departs. Darklighter? Darklighter. Darklighter. <laughs> who departs to join the Rebellion. So they basically just scratched all that. I think it works better to wait to introduce Luke. I think so too because you open with that amazing battle and you're like, oh my god, this is insane. It wouldn't have felt the same if you're cutting between... The battle and Luke watching it and like chatting with his friends, you'd be like, "Get out! Who cares about these kids? They're watching a space <laughs> battle." I feel like it would definitely interfere with that uh, the epic sequence that you have there. Now, how do you feel about the Star Wars new additions with the added CGI? I mean, I don't. I mean, I don't really like them that much. But I remember as a kid, <laughs> I remember as a kid because I knew that they were made so long ago. I was like, how did they do this? Because <laughs> I was like, I know this is CGI. I was like, I thought they didn't have computers back then. <laughs> so it fooled me when I was like a teen, a young teenager watching them. I'm like, wow, this is amazing how George Lucas <laughs> figured out how to make these like a- CGI animals in the 70s. <laughs> it's absolutely stunning. <laughs> then I was like, like oh. it holds up pretty well. <laughs> yeah, I was like, man, this is crazy. How do they do this? And then I realized that's all added in after the fact. Uh, pretty recently i think i mean it, lucas wanted it, he wanted it but there's certain parts where it's like did you really want that there like <laughs> that in the background is it that important to you and also the fact that cgi was like it's like sci-fi channel cgi it's pretty bad it's like like dinosaur documentary cgi so it's pretty it doesn't hold up compared to like modern films but hey, if he wanted it, he wanted he wanted to put it in the the biggest change with cgi and there's a lot of there's a lot of discourse about whether it's true or not, but there's footage of the original version of Jabba the Hutt. And the original version of Jabba the Hutt was an act, it's just a guy, actor, and a wardrobe. And I believe, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure, obviously I wasn't there, but like, I'm pretty sure that the original Jabba the Hutt was just this guy in the original, initial theatrical release. It's just this guy with like, a, he's got like a necklace with teeth on it, and he's got like a furry coat. And that, that was the original job of the hut. And then they changed it to like this gross looking giant alien slug guy in the second and third films and second film and the third one. Yeah. But the, but, and then in the re-releases, Lucas has CGI'd over that guy, but before they used stop motion over that guy. But I believe the initial job of the hut was that on its initial release was just this guy in, in like the, a fur jacket is literally have, I look it up online yeah, he's wearing a fur coat. yeah that was the original jabba and i think that's an example of lucas had that and he's like it doesn't really work let's make him an alien and so he was able to finish it do the second film this is jabba the hut and then on re-releases add the cgi into it. like when when han solo steps on jabba's uh tail he they clearly just like 
edited him, rose the his frame up. It's so unnatural yeah. to step up because that wasn't there on set, and they didn't even they didn't even film like a guy in a suit. And, and it's not like Lucas replaced the slug suit with a CGI. It was just a guy. Guy, it was just a person playing. That guy Jabba. must be so salty. If I mean, he's still yeah. alive, like I'd be so salty. Like, like what they turned me into. <laughs> like he's like, this is it. This is a big role. And then like, and then like three years go by. And like, what did he do to me? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but like, Jabba wouldn't like it. Wouldn't have been the same if it was just a guy, if a human. Oh, absolutely. It would have been a completely different character. And so, I understand how like he. It's okay to change things. That's definitely a change that worked for the better for for the franchise for sure. And I mean. For, but for the CGI, I think it can be a little distracting and, like, unnecessary at times. Yeah, I have mixed feelings about it because, you know, I, I love when directors get their full vision done and put into their movie, which is this is the stuff that he wanted to do. You know, he wanted these little aliens on the top of a dune that's just there for three seconds. He wanted stormtroopers riding these that's what he wanted. things. Yeah. So I'm, I'm happy that he got what he wanted and this this is full vision. However, you know, it just doesn't look that great. Mm. And it's very noticeable. But the thing with Star Wars is it's just like this creative campiness that they just go in full swing and fully confident. It works almost all the time. But the thing is, the reason why it doesn't, why you say and I'll agree that it doesn't look great is because the whole lo-fi aspect of the special effects and visual effects, it works because you know it's lo-fi and... It's, it's not supposed to be perfect, but when you throw in the computer-generated imagery into the lo-fi visual effects, then, it's, then it becomes noticeable. You know what I mean? I know what you mean, man. Yeah. How about we head on into our intermission now that we're, oh, yeah. we're done pretty much talking about all the production I'm elements. Done. See you later. And now we'll get into the actual movie and the plot and characters that we all love and so much after our super fun intermission. <laughs> it's going to be super fun, man. <laughs> Before we continue, the best way to support Raiders of the Lost Podcast besides using our coupon codes is become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast to get perks like personalized videos and messages, weekly bonus episodes that every single patron has access to, our $10, $25, and $100 tier patrons have access to our Discord, which we're on every day. We do watch parties on there, too, a couple times a month. It's a lot of fun. $25, $100 tier patrons get custom episodes. You pick the topic, we do one for you. $100 tier patrons, they get all that. Plus, they are an executive producer on the main episodes of the show. You get your your name read off at the end of every main episode, as well as you get a private watch party and... You be, get a guest segment after three months of being a Chosen One patron. Patreon's the number one way to support the show. It keeps us doing it full time. So thanks so much for everyone who is a patron. This episode is sponsored by MoviePosters.com, the number one place to get your posters online today. Head on over to their website and use our special promo code Raiders10 to get 10% off your order. Our set is decorated with a bunch of these amazing posters, high quality, all sorts of options from pretty much every movie and TV show imaginable, including all of the Star Wars posters. Again, they also have all sorts of sizes, framing, and backlighting. So whatever your poster needs are, MoviePosters.com has you covered. They also have a huge selection of all sorts of sizes, framing, backlighting. So whatever your poster needs are, they got you covered. Remember, go to MoviePosters.com for all of your poster needs and use our special promo code RAIDERS10. Again, RAIDERS10 to get 10% off your order today. 
Raiders of the Lost podcast is brought to you by our good friends at Manscaped.com. Use our code Raiders of the Lost and you'll get 20% off in free shipping worldwide. Do you want your own rocket ship into space for your grooming needs? I recommend getting the Lawnmower 4.0 Groomer. This thing has a 7,000 RPM motor. It's skin safe, wireless charger, built-in flashlight, waterproof. You can use this thing in the shower at night. It is sick. I also recommend getting their Boxer Briefs 2.0. Anthony and I got a bunch of pairs from Manscaped. They are chef's kiss. The most comfortable briefs that I own. Anthony, how comfy are they? I love them. They're super soft. I love them. And they got a little extra room for your junk so that you're extra comfortable. I'm telling you, get the briefs 2.0. You will not regret it. They got cool designs too. I like them a lot. And the deodorant. I love the deodorant. Oh, the deodorant's awesome as well. 2-1 body wash. You know guys love 2-in-1 shampoo conditioner stuff. They it's got a 6-in-1. They have a 17-in-1 <laughs> shampoo conditioner. Kidding. It's a 2-in-1 shampoo conditioner. It's a toothpaste and shampoo. Body wash. <laughs> hey, man, we're going to get in trouble. They're be like, no, we do not have a toothpaste <laughs> shampoo conditioner. 2-in-1 shampoo conditioner, body wash, deodorant. Manscaped has everything you need for your daily grooming needs. Head on there to manscaped.com right now. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout. Not only will it be supporting the show, but you'll get 20% off in free shipping worldwide. This episode is also sponsored by Zavi, the leader in popular culture. For all of your merchandise, posters, clothing, collectibles, figures, pop figures, whatever you want for all of your favorite franchises and TV shows, the number one place to go is Zavi.com. That's Z-A-V-V-I.com. Use our coupon code RAIDERS. Get all sorts of goodies. This helmet that I got. Hold on, let check me, out the helmet. Let me put the helmet back on yeah. while you talk. While you put the helmet on. So Zavi has a ton of merch, DVDs, Blu-rays, steelbooks for the Star Wars franchise. They sent us this awesome Blu-ray set of the original trilogy special for this episode. They have everything Star Wars fans want, from pops to clothing to merchandise, uh, whatever your needs are. Also. Very I got this helmet. Cool collectibles from like Zavi. that. It's so comfortable. It's cool. It's got such like flying modes. There's speakers. It talks to you. You hear yeah. voices. There's lights. It's like the ultimate Star Wars fan fantasy helmet. It's amazing. I love it so much. They also have their, a free industry magazine called The Lowdown where they feature special interviews with filmmakers and feature stories based on upcoming films and TV shows. So go on over to... The Lowdown at Zavi.com. It's a free magazine, digital download, lots of fun, very cool interviews. That's Zavi, Z-A-V-V-I.com. Use our code Raiders at checkout. Get all sorts of discounts. And they got Lego stuff, too. Lots of Lego. We got James the, uh, got a TIE, tie fighter. fighter right here, which I will yeah. build eventually. 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 But again, Zavi, amazing sponsor. Head on over to their site and use our code. Thanks, everyone. All right, I'm going to wear the helmet for the intermission because it's so fun. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's begin with our movie quote competition. I got I got an easy one for you, but you know, I won't have to give me any softballs, man. There. I'm not a softball hit. I could hit 95, no problem. Get off my plane. <laughs> Harrison Ford. <laughs> and, um, oh, what's it called? <laughs> um, oh, he's blanking. What's it? Oh, it's Harrison. Gary Oldman. The, the wine's hitting you, huh? The wine. Um, no, I don't want to make any excuses. Uh, Air Force <laughs> down. Air Force one. There you go. Air Force one. I can hit 95. <laughs> I hit it, bro. Out of the park. Get off my plane. <laughs> <laughs> I love that movie. Gary Oldman's, uh, he's got a Russian accent. It's great. He's so good in that movie. He's good in everything. All right, here's my quote. It's two characters talking. So the first character says, 
he doesn't have a passport. And then the reply is, for the last six months, he's gone to Harvard and Berkeley. I'm betting he can get a passport. Hmm. For the last six months, he's gone to Harvard and Berkeley. I'm betting he can get a passport. That's it. Man, sounds vaguely familiar. Um, obviously, some young adults talking here. Played by older actors, probably. <laughs> I don't know. Catch me if you can. It's actually Tom Hanks and another FBI agent talking about it. Yeah. yeah. You should have done it in his accent. He's been a habit in Berkeley in the last six months. And ready. And ready. Forgot your wallet. Forgot your wallet. Keep it. I trust you. Hold on. It's hand ready. Hand ready. I love that movie. I'm getting close, aren't I? You got no one else to call. I can't. We got to talk about that soon. We should. That's an iconic movie. Yeah, we should. Moving on. Guess this movie release year, Anthony. Okay, James. Anthony. <laughs> Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade. Last Crusade. Last Crusade. <laughs> Sorry, I got the giggles right now. Um, that's actually a, oh, that's a tough one to guess. Uh, 91. 89. Damn it. Almost a 90s movie. Damn it. Okay, guess this movie release year. What if I don't want to? I mean, I guess, I mean, that's no fun. All right, I'll do it. Don't be a Debbie Downer, bro. <laughs> Sleepy Hollow. This is 2000s. It's got to be. I went Christopher Walken with my trivia today. It's got to be 2000s. I'm going to go 2000 and three. 1999. It's a 1999 movie? Holy crap. Yeah, the great year, man. It's really like the best year of movies. I'm trying to think of like when Casper came out because Christina Ricci's a kid in that. That she's, was like 94. She's super young in Sleepy Hollow, though. She is. Yeah, she's she's, pretty, she's probably like, like she's a like jailbait for, for Johnny oh Depp in that movie. She's, well, I mean, Keira Knightley was 17 when she filmed Pirates of the Caribbean. True, true. That is a fact. Not when it came out when she filmed that she yes. was 17. It's funny how people always fight us on yeah, that. Yeah, it's nuts. It's just a, just a literal fact. Google's free 99. Yeah. Hop on there. Oh, uh, actually, she was 18 when the movie came out. Uh, yeah, I, said when, I said Go when she made the Wikipedia. film. Movies are not made a week before they're released. She's... Jeez. Jeez Louise. Okay. What's your quiz question? Let's hear it. Let, <clears> her, <throat> let her rip. What actor, swing away, appears in the most Star Wars films? Most Star Wars. What actor? Like, appear, like is Force Ghost count? I mean. No, not a Force Ghost. Uh, He's literally, like, in, sh- like an, actually, in camera. In, in camera, okay. In the most. So, not a Force Ghost. Not a Force <laughs> Ghost. <laughs> Because then, like, like everyone's in all of them. Uh, all the Jedi are. Um, not true. I'm going to go with Carrie Fisher. Nah. She's only in four. Five. Five. Oh, yeah, five. It's a lot. Nah, it's not her. Nah, son. <laughs> nah, son. So it's an actor or a character? I'm sorry. Actor? Actor. Actor. Appears? Appears in... Oh, it's the guy who plays Anthony Daniels. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this guy who plays C3PO. <laughs> got him. Good Nailed one. it, man. Good one. Yeah, I got the first 
try wrong though. Hey, I'm really proud of you though. You figured it out. Thanks, man. <laughs> I'm glad you like. It's it kind noticed. of a stumper. I'm glad you noticed. <clears throat> uh, yeah, because they got a new actor to play Chewie for the sequels. Mm. Okay, here's my quiz question: What film did Christopher Walken where win an Oscar for? I won an Oscar. I was really happy about it. The Deer Hunter. Yes. Great. Let's go. Well done. Well done. Well done. He's great in that movie. Mm. Man, that's such a classic. It's a good movie. All right, who we got for unsubscribes, haters? What do we got, Anthony? Oh, we, we got some. Some good ones? We got some good ones. One second while I pull it up. I hope so. Sorry. Okay. Some of my favorite things in every episode. <laughs> I got to take this helmet off. <laughs> well, I had, I had uh, this, uh, this is a, a comment. It's not a hater. But it's just like my favorite comment of the week is uh, I posted a clip, uh, an old clip talking about the ages of all the Lord of the Rings characters. Oh, the one that's we pronounce Galadriel, yeah. Gala- Galadriel, Galadriel, and yeah. everyone gets upset. I didn't pronounce it. You pronounce it. I Don't mean... say we. <laughs> hey, you're part of it. It's a team. <laughs> I'm not talking. <laughs> no one knows who's talking. We're twins. <laughs> so uh, this guy, BCW Diver, wrote, honest question. How do you know the ages of all the characters? And I replied, the internet. <laughs> <laughs> what a dumb question. <laughs> I, I sent a, I mailed a letter to Peter Jackson. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> oh, That's amazing. It's in the books, right? Uh, uh, also, uh, our friend Taylor Jane, who helped build our new sign, if you're checking out on YouTube or Spotify video, we have a new sign from Anthony DeMeo and, and Taylor Jane. Well, Taylor's his wife. Yeah. And on your post, you spelled her name wrong, so she wrote, however, you spelled my name wrong, so oh God, unsubscribed. Did, did I? Oh, I spelled your user tag right, though. Uh, I, I tagged so, you yeah. correctly, Taylor. I'm sorry, Taylor. I was just so fl- flustered from how glorious the sign came out. And it's glorious. Taylor did the letters, and they came out incredible. Look at those things. Yeah, they are amazing. popping. If you're watching on on set, on, the set on camera, on YouTube, or Spotify, I mean, look at this thing. It's huge and beautiful. It's basically a marquee sign. It's, it's exactly amazing. Like it was, Edison bulbs all over it. It's exactly what I, like, I came up with in Photoshop, and they nailed it. They nailed it. It's amazing. It really is. Really appreciate it, Anthony and Taylor. And, Thanks, guys. Yeah, congratulations on your family. It's a lovely family. It's a lovely family. It's, it's growing. It's growing. Okay. Next up, Blex Talk uh, was unsure that we were either one person or two people. And I looked through the comments to see if anyone was thinking what I was thinking to no avail. A few episodes later, I realized you guys are legit twins. Unsubscribed. <laughs> Disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think I said this one. I'm not sure. Birkin Glock wrote, wrote, said the word film bro too many times. Unsubscribed. 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 <laughs> all right, that's all of them. We have a great five-star review. This is from Ian G. Hyatt. This is my favorite podcast to listen to. James and Anthony, along with being very charismatic and humorous, aw, shucks, Thanks. are truly passionate about the content they put into the show, whether you are a well-seasoned movie veteran or just recently found an interest in it. What you will find is a great community of people who all have a common interest regardless of background. James and Anthony will dive into cinematography, filming techniques, music, character arcs, overall uh, overall acting, and behind-the-scenes facts you never knew you needed. They are true film lovers and respect the art. Whether a movie is their cup of tea or not, they always articulate and are emphatic that it is still something to offer and will never hate on anyone for finding enjoyment from something they necessarily didn't. 
yeah, if you like Morbius, good for you, man. Not you, Ian. <laughs> no, you didn't. <laughs> in other words, they're not even in the slightest bit pretentious film snobs. James and Anthony once gave me a shout out on the podcast simply for asking my girlfriend, simply for asking. My girlfriend asked them to wish me a happy birthday, and they sent me a video wishing me happy birthday without asking for anything in return. And felt feel free to send them good movie memes on Instagram because they will see it and laugh. <laughs> Maybe repost their story. I love, I love the memes. These yeah. guys love their fans and interacting with them. We do love you all so much. They cover all genres, and if you take a look at their page, chances are they have done something. Some of your favorite movies. The only way I can think to encapsulate this podcast is this: listening to this show is like having two of your good friends hanging out with you, talking about your favorite movies. Wherever you want, whenever you want, you should really give it a try. I did, and I can honestly say it feels good to be a Raider. Aww. Oh my gosh, I'm tearing up that's, over here. That's amazing. Ian, thanks, Ian. Appreciate you so much, pal. Oh, shucks. <sighs> oh, it's, uh, it's too much sometimes. The feels. The feels. Do we have a Godfather uh, shout-out? Of course we do. Who is it? This week's Godfather shout-out is Mac Wells. We made you an offer. The Davis Stowers episode, you became a guy. You acted like a man! <laughs> Every time it's funny. <laughs> you can act like a man! <laughs> Mac, thank you so much for supporting the show. It allows us to do this full-time. Patreon is an invaluable resource for us. We love interacting with all of you Godfather patrons and making these awesome bonus episodes for you. Mac chose City of God for oh, his nice. bonus bonus review. We should have done that episode on that by we then. We should have. But I'm very excited to do that for you, pal. It's going to be a great one. It's an awesome film. It's incredible. Yeah. Thank you, Thank you, Mac. You're the best. On this day in film history, today is August 22nd. In 1932, BBC begins experimental regular TV broadcasts. In 1986, Stand By Me is released. In 1997, G.I. Jane and Mimic are released. In 2008, The House Bunny is released. <laughs> I love that movie. It's classic. In 2018, Forbes says George Clooney made more money in a single year, $239 million, than any actor ever due to the sale of his alcohol company, followed by Dwayne Johnson, who made $124 million. Damn. That's why, all these, that's why all these actors are getting into liquor, liquor man. yeah. Like, with Three, Ryan Reynolds then, yeah. and uh, Aaron Paul and Brian, Brian Cranston with Dos Hombres. They saw all the money that There's Clooney There's a bunch made. of people making them now. But Coppola, with his winery, he's made a boatload of money. Yeah. The, the cool thing about that is he put up his winery to finish Apocalypse Now. And then he had to <laughs> – then fortunately he made a lot of money off Apocalypse Now. It's good wine. But he almost, like, went bankrupt completely from that movie. Mm -hmm. And Sophia has uh, Rosé. Oh, that's right. Yeah. It's very, very good. My streaming recommendation for this episode is going to be The House of the Dragon. Or Ooh. House of the Dragon, I mean. How'd you like it? Just debuted yesterday. How, how'd you like it? I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> You're definitely not recording this in advance. So uh, how, tell me, what was your favorite part of this? It's of definitely the not August 8th right now. Um, <laughs> the House of the Dragon was incredible. My favorite part was the dragons. <laughs> and then the house. And then the house was really cool. <laughs> Great house. I can't believe it got burned down. <laughs> Spoilers, man. Spoilers. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. Again, we're filming this August 8th. 
But it came. Nobody's house burns down. But it came out yesterday. <laughs> that we think that we well, don't. We don't know. Exactly. You, you, it could have burned down. A house could have burned down. I'm just glad you enjoyed it. <laughs> Me too, man. I can't wait to watch it again. But we're doing since we watched it yesterday. <laughs> I <laughs> liked it so much. <laughs> we're doing a review tomorrow on Tuesday, August 23rd. I can't wait to see what you guys. Do. I can't wait for you all to see it because I know, man. I know we just knocked it out of the park. Yeah, we were firing on all cylinders when we did that review. <laughs> My streaming recommendation is something I've actually seen. <laughs> 13 Lives on Amazon Prime. It's Ron Howard's new film starring Viggo Mortensen, Colin Farrell, and Joel Edgerton. Did you do this last time? No, did I? <laughs> I don't care, man. No, no, I didn't. I didn't. Two episodes ago, you, you suggested this. I recommend 13 Lives. <laughs> no, I didn't recommend it. I didn't. Re- I just said it. I, in the movie news episode, I, I said it was a new release. Did, are you sure? Yeah. Okay. 100%. I've been saving it. Okay. You've been saving this bacon. It's amazing. <laughs> it's so freaking good. It's Nobody's talking about it because it got released on Prime and didn't get a marketing campaign. But it's Ron Howard's best film in a long time. It's really incre- It's an incredible true story about a volunteer divers who rescued 12 12 teens trapped on, in a cave that was flooded in the in Thailand. Yeah, I remember this was a huge news story. Yeah, it happened in 2018, and it's really an unbelievable film. It, the acting, the filmmaking, the claustrophobia he created inside these caverns underwater. I my heart was racing for like literally an hour, and I was like, oh my god, oh my god, the whole time. But it's really an amazing film. Uh, it's not going to get much recognition, but it really deserves to. If if you have Prime, add it to your watch list and watch it ASAP. I couldn't recommend it. Oh, it's Amazon Prime. Amazon Prime. Is it an original? Amazon Prime original? I think they bought it. Gotcha. Yeah, I'm not sure they produced it. I think they bought it after it was made. I will watch it because you have excellent taste in movies, sir. I try. And, you know, when sometimes you're passionate about, like, Sit down and watch this movie. <laughs> do it. And it ends up being a really great experience. You've done that a bunch of times and it's just blown my mind. Like you did that with me for Parasite. You're like, dude, you should go see Parasite right now because that was not a huge yeah. box office hit at first. Yeah. And it was still like under the radar. You were like, Nobody was talking about when I was, saw yeah. this movie, it's Parasite. I'm like, Yeah, yeah. what did I heard about that? Is it good? Yeah, I watched it in a small theater and it was like pretty empty theater. But I was like, Oh my freaking god, this movie's insane. All right, how about we get back into our episode on Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope and get into the film itself. Let's talk about that film. Now, let's talk about that bad boy. Again, this came out in 1977 at the 1978 Academy Awards. It took home six Oscars for Best Art Direction, Best Costume Design, Best Sound, Best Film Editing, Best Visual Effects, and Best Original Score. Again, it was originally called Star Wars, then they added A New Hope a few years later in 1981. And I'll for a synopsis, how about I read the sprawl? Yeah, what's Star Wars about? It is a parody. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna read the text crawl instead. <laughs> what is this movie? It is a period of civil war. Rebels actually can you go Ta-da! Ta-da! It's a period of civil war. Oh, too loud, too loud, too loud. It is a period of civil war. Rebel spaceships striking from a hidden base. Oh, never mind. You're talking about this. You forget that. I'm not perfect, man. All right. It is a period of civil war rebel spaceships striking 
from a hidden base have won their first victory against the evil Galactic Empire. Good. During the battle, rebel spies managed to steal secret plans to the <gasps> Empire's ultimate weapon, the Death Star, oh. an armored space station with enough power to destroy an entire planet. <gasps> Pursued by the Empire's sinister agents, Princess Leia races home aboard her starship, custodian of the plans that can save her people and restore freedom to the galaxy. I hope it works out. I hope so too, man. A New Hope is incredible, and... You know, it's got a, such a, a sensational cast. We have Carrie Fisher, Mark Hamill as Luke Skywalker, Harrison Ford as Han Solo, James Earl Jones does the voice for Darth Vader, and the characters are what make this story so phenomenal. They're so memorable. Like I said earlier, everyone knows the music to, to Star Wars. Everyone knows it, but everyone knows the characters. We all love them for different reasons. I mean, Leia is one of the most heroic figures or probably the most heroic figure in the entire franchise great of Star action Wars. heroine too yeah so in terms of being a leader pure leader she's top notch top of the franchise for sure Han Solo is beyond charismatic he's just like a, a wild card bad boy just doing his own thing I like how you like your <laughs> posture changed like yeah Han Solo man and then Luke is just a great hero he's full of ambition and, and longing for adventure and he's got that the youthful energy that we all have at one point in our life and then just goes away but <laughs> but you, you just you can't help but follow him and endless journey follow him wherever he goes on his path and his adventures incredible villains from the empire darth vader and it's just so iconic it's star wars man it's star wars bro but also i mean the character transformation it where you take luke and he starts out just like a kid on a farm uh, well, I mean, do you even call that a farm? Moisture farm. Moisture farm. <laughs> thank you, thank you. And he's just a kid with living with his aunt and uncle, and he's got nothing, and he doesn't really have much at all. And then by the end of the film, he saved the friggin' galaxy. It's it's an amazing story arc for a character. And to go from um, having absolutely no knowledge about anything like the Force or intergalactic evil empires or or like other characters but to, and then to go being being able to embrace the force and use it and transform into a force sensitive person who obviously has a lot to learn but can tap into that resource in an amazing way that even surprises an expert like Darth Vader really phenomenal and then you have Han Solo who goes from you know this wise cracking like guy who pretty gray area anti-hero he's not like a villain but he's not like a great guy a criminal but he turns into someone who sacrifices he puts his life on the line to save others uh, leia i think she's more of a static character she's just an awesome leader from start to finish uh, whereas the other the guys they really go through transformation and uh she is hugely influential in making them better men and and, and then obi-wan character arc going from you know this recluse who we find out now he's kind of keeping a watchful eye on Luke as he grew up. But then to insert himself and to have this final moment with Darth Vader and sacrificing himself to help Luke out, an amazing arc as well. So just great character development in this film. And that's the reason why the characters are great because there's great transformation and great moments for everyone involved. And great redemption. Redemption. Han Solo's redemption is phenomenal. Star Wars Episode Four: Redemption. <laughs> Now, I like A New Hope a lot. It's probably my second favorite of the original trilogy. I think uh, Return of the Jedi is still my number one. Yeah, Last Jedi is my number one. Just but, kidding. <laughs> I think A New Hope is the most contained of the series. It's probably the simplest storyline. Effectively tells the story and everything it needs to do is just pretty simple. You know, the plot is Princess Leia is trying to get the Death Star plans from her ship 
through R2-D2 to get to Obi-Wan Kenobi to bring to her father on Alderaan so that they can analyze the Death Star plans and hopefully find a weakness to bring it down. That's pretty much the plot of the film. And Obi-Wan and Luke get mixed up together and then they recruit Han Solo and Chewie to be their guides and their their pilots from Tatooine on the journey to Alderaan. And then that's basically it. It's kind of simple when you think about it in terms of a simple story structure. It's kind of just like a classic fantasy story. Act 1, we are introduced to the heroes and their quests. Act 2, save the princess from the Dark Castle. Uh, and Act 3, destroy the Dark Castle. That's pretty much how it goes. So it's like Super Mario Bros. Kind of. Yeah. yeah it's, of. It is very simple. There are, And there actually aren't even that many scenes. And it works. It really works. But what really changed for the future of films is Lucas began spending a lot more time with the villainous characters. Because in this film, Darth Vader only has 12 minutes of screen time. Which is ridiculous if you think about it. You're like, how is that possible? It's, it's, that can't be possible. But then if you actually add it up, it really is 12 minutes. Obviously, he's such an impactful character that it feels like his presence is always felt especially after his great first scene. But uh, Lucas, after this film, began spending a lot more time uh, fleshing out the Sith. Then we get Palpatine. We get Vader a lot more on their own and his own his own side plot. Whereas this film, it really is solely based upon you know the lead characters. And oftentimes we see Vader because, especially in the beginning of the film, interacting with Leia. So the less reliance on the other threads allows for a more simple plot. Also, Lucas was really smart about how he filmed it. Very low budget. I'm going to set a lot of this film in the desert, bro. You don't got to build nothing. You saw these little tiny pieces of sets in here and there. But, I mean, for location work, there is a large portion of the film set during the in, inside the desert. So I think he was really smart with how he filmed locations in this film, not inside the studio. And did you know that Freddy Krueger was essential to getting... Mark Hamill cast as Luke Skywalker. I did. They were roommates. Yeah, so they were roommates. Robert England actually auditioned for a role in Star Wars, and he didn't get the part. But then he went home, and Luke's. I mean, Mark Hamill was. They were living in an apartment together, and he's like, "Hey, man, like Lucas is doing a star, like a star fantasy movie, a, a space fantasy movie. You might be up for the part. They're looking for like a teenage looking person to be the lead actor." I'm a teenage-looking person. <laughs> then he went and auditioned, and he got the part the next day. Or the, well, he auditioned the next day, and then he got the part, which is really incredible. So Robert England was essentially getting Mark Hamill cast, and Mark Hamill's excellent in this. And we all know the famous Harrison Ford story of being the carpenter. Uh, he had been in American Graffiti, which was Lucas's other film, and he had been in a few other things as well. Uh, he also he has a tiny role in Apocalypse Now as well. So he was a working actor, but yeah. he, he was still being a carpenter. Yeah, because, I mean, time. he wasn't making that much money. I mean, just because you're in a, in a role in a movie doesn't mean you're making bank. I mean, he's a tiny roles here and there. And so he, in a, for a long time, he just, he, after a long time of just struggling to find, like, significant work, he just kind of stopped. And he had been a carpenter for a long time, and he was, he was doing carpentry full time. And the story goes is that Lucas uh, hired him to do new shelving in his home, and since he had experienced acting and they had obviously a working relationship from American Graffiti. He asked Harrison Ford to help read scenes with the actors he was auditioning for Star Wars at his house. And then after several days of reading scenes, uh, playing the character of Han Solo for the other opposite, the other actors who were auditioning for Luke and Leia, Lucas, I think just saw all the potential in Harrison Ford as the character. And I mean, that's how he was cast as Han Solo, just like this thing that wasn't really planned he has happened to be there, these odd circumstances. And Har I mean, I think Harrison Ford's star power in a lot of ways is unparalleled 
only a couple other actors or actresses have ever really reached the the magnitude that Harrison Ford has to have two of the the, the lead to be a main character in two of the biggest franchises of all time is just really something incredible and he is such an, a legendary actor and beloved guy and to think that I mean it really did come down to this just like odd chance occurrence of Lucas happening to need a, a carpenter and someone to read scenes with these actors for auditions is it's so bizarre and like stranger than fiction you can't plan that but guys Harrison Ford was in Apocalypse Now which came out in 1979 2 years after Star but Wars why? was but wasn't he already a big star was he still like a full-time actor yes however Harrison Ford filmed Star Wars and Apocalypse Now both in 1976. His role in Apocalypse Now is just basically one scene. He's just a very side character that probably took a day or two just to really do. He's probably hardly on set for a week. And then, so he filmed these both, but it took Apocalypse Now three years after production wrapped to actually be released as a film. That's why we talked about during the intermission that Coppola almost went bankrupt on this movie. And if the production took a year on its own, just the production. So he was a huge star before Apocalypse Now came out. Yes, because Star Wars came out first, but they were filmed around the same time. He might have even filmed Apocalypse Now before. Who knows? I don't know. I think I he filmed it before. I don't have the exact schedule because Star Wars started filming in March 1976 and so didn't, so didn't uh, Apocalypse Now. I'm pretty sure he filmed Apocalypse Now first and that's because it's such a minor role. But he was also in... Francis Ford Coppola's film *The Conversation*. Oh yeah, yeah. He is a, he is actually a pretty significant role in that film. He's in like four scenes in that film. And Han has an incredible introduction. You know, you you grow to love this scoundrel so much by the end of the film because of his redemption arc by coming back to help the rebellion and saving Luke from Darth Vader and blasting him off into a spiral and outer space. And that's why I'm not a huge fan of what they did to him in the prequel trilogy, where they kind of just wiped away all the redemption that Han Solo had achieved as a character and in the transformations he went through. Because I love his opening, where he's just, he's a scoundrel. He's in the cantina. He's sketchy. He's he gets in this shootout, and whoever shot first is up for debate. I think that you know Lucas kind of changed it in the 1997 edition with the special edition, clearly showing Greedo shooting first, but the original cut shows that Han might have shot first. I kind of think it, he did. But there are actually three cuts. Bit, but George doesn't want it to make it seem like Han Solo is a bad guy shooting first. They want they wanted to give him like a reason to shoot and justify yeah. it in a lot of ways. So the original the original one was Greedo didn't even fire at all and Han just shot him dead. Uh, and then the second one was Greedo fires first and then Han re reciprocates. And then the final version is they both like fire at the same time. I love Han, though, because this is also, you know, we have the references to samurai. We have a space odyssey, space adventure, but we also have westerns. we got a gunslinger here. That's what I think the new one was really missing was a gunslinger or something like that because a lot of these early Star Wars films have that aspect of westerns. And that's why I like Mandalorian a lot because they brought the gunslinger western aesthetic and feel and vibe to that show so well that was really has only been present in the original trilogy yeah i i really that is a great correlation han being like a cowboy uh he's not riding a horse he's flying a spaceship but Money, he does he's, Falcon, Falcon. He's, he still goes to bars and and cantinas and and drinking drinking his uh days away and uh doing unsavory things to make a living he definitely is the cowboy i suppose i mean i don't i think maybe having a character like that would have helped the the sequels but i mean 
I don't it seems know. like that's who Poe became is like this the Han Solo type character. Oh yeah, they ended up making him a a, a like an underground trader in his past. As I never well. fell in love with like... Poe in the in the new trilogy. I never really did. I liked Finn the most in Ray in the first film. Like they're great, but obviously we all know that they kind of ruined Finn's character for the end. But I think that like Poe, I just never really fell in love with him. Like I, I like I like Poe, but I just think the uh, the sequel trilogy. The, the main three are not I mean they're not the same as the original three and and even the prequels I mean yeah I'd say Obi-Wan Anakin and uh, Padme they're not as iconic as the original three either I just think the original three are special I but I really do think it comes down to Harrison's charm and his charisma and then contrasted with Carrie Fisher uh, I think they had an amazing dynamic really memorable really popped on screen uh, the two of them were just like kind of fire on screen together uh i think that really comes down to but i think ultimately harrison ford is harrison ford there's never been another harrison ford so i think it's it, he's a special kind of not just being a talented actor but just being a talent like just like an infectious human being that everyone can't help but watch he's the man yeah he's the man he's indian jones and han solo and yeah. the president and no one will ever come close to what harrison and jack was. ryan and jack ryan now leia played by carrie fisher one of the most iconic characters in science fiction history for sure she's a champion of the rebellion she's like we said earlier the best leader overall by a huge margin in the entirety of the star wars franchise she was an early form of a princess or female character in an action or adventure film who was just as tough as the guys, if not tougher. She's bossing them around. Yeah, yeah she can, got them out. Yeah, You can argue that Ripley from Alien, which came out in 1979, was like the first, you could say, female action star in a lot of ways in mainstream film, a large blockbuster movie. I'm not counting like smaller budget independent films. Leia sure helped inspire that character for sure. Leia's intelligence, she's noble, she's a terrific leader, she's also humble and a loyal servant to her people and the people of Alderaan. She is, of course, though, in this prequel trilogy, objectified, clearly with the 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 prison bathing suit later on, the bikini and the other ones. Not but, wearing a bra in the first, yeah. But also, even though she's fully clothed in the first one, she's like the object of Han and Luke's desires. She's constantly like, they're kind of like fighting for her attention in a lot yeah. of ways. Like she's going to end up with one of us, obviously, who's it going to be? It's like, what's going on? It's the 1970s. It is what it is. But um, the thing with Leia is people might wonder, did she have force powers shown in the original trilogy? Because childhood Leia in Obi-Wan's show, we realized that she is showing force powers because Luke get, gets all the force attention. But Leia definitely shows force powers in A New Hope. She resists the mind probe. This impresses the Imperials, but we have seen force-sensitive people resist the invasion of their minds several times. You could argue also that in these sequences, Vader might have, if he was paying attention, could have noticed something was going on with Princess Leia with why she was able to resist the probes. Yeah, I suppose maybe he hadn't... Maybe Lucas hadn't figured out that they were brother and sister yet in terms of the writing when they were making this. That's my guess uh, because then it would become kind of obvious uh, because why would the other characters know? Like, Why would Obi-Wan know, if, know what? Uh, uh, that they were brother and sister? Or is it... Is oh, I said Darth Vader. Oh, Darth Vader. I'm sorry. But I, I, I mean... I'm not saying anything about Darth, brother yeah. and sister. I'm just saying why she's so force sensitive. No, no. But yeah, I, but 
it makes sense that she would be force sensitive, but maybe it makes sense her not being force sensitive in this film because he was still figuring things out as he was making. No, this I'm one. saying she is force sensitive, and I'm just saying if Darth Vader was paying attention, he would have realized that she was showing force. I understand. Abilities. I'm saying that maybe Lucas, when he made the film, didn't even have that planned out. Is what I'm saying. Yeah, maybe that's that's all I'm saying. Yeah, is that it, it would make sense for him not to write her as force sensitive in this film because he was still working things out. But also what's fascinating about the Force is that uh, it's still kind of like this pseudo-religion or like urban legend and not everyone really believes it. Even the people working amongst Darth Vader and that's why uh, there's that character who like questions his authority and calls out this like religion that he's in and then Vader just friggin' chokes him to death using the Force which is a really great showcase of what it is and also the background that it's kind of like this thing that is kind of out there, but not everyone knows of it. And people who have heard of it probably don't believe it exists unless they've actually seen uh, e- examples of it, like this moment with Vader killing that officer. So I like how the Force is like not fully known or believed amongst the public. Yeah, it's a mysterious energy energy field created by life that binds the galaxy together and the jedi are able to harness the power of the force so aren't the sith and others people other people are sensitive to the spiritual energy they have extraordinary abilities such as levitating objects tricking minds and seeing things before they happen or bringing people back from the dead or keeping them alive as we all know now darth vader one of the greatest antagonists and villains in cinema history he is so iconic he's terrifying the huge black suit you don't see his face until the end of the trilogy he talks in this robotic sounding voice james Earl jones still is voicing the character today which is incredible he has that breathing apparatus he has incredible power on the dark side and we also learn from obi-wan kenobi that according to obi-wan he's talking to luke he knew obi-wan knew luke's father and fought alongside him as a jedi in the wars However, Darth Vader killed Obi um, killed Luke Skywalker's father, which we all actually I think that they tie a really good job with that with the Obi Wan show saying like, "I you didn't kill uh, Anakin Skywalker, I did," which is actually really cool and it kind of ties to this line that Obi Wan says to Luke Skywalker. Now, the name Darth Vader has simple origins. Darth is a variation of the word dark, and Vader is a variation of father. James Earl Jones was picked to voice Vader due to his deep mellifluous voice and was paid a total of $7,500 for his two-hour vocal work. That's not pretty bad. good cheddar cheese in 1977. Not, not too shabby. Darth Vader's sinister breathing, again, was recorded by sticking a microphone inside a scuba tank regulator, the breathing done by Burt himself, the sound designer. Darth Vader, like Anthony said, only has 12 minutes of screen time, but it feels like he's there for an eternity. Yeah, it feels like a omniscient in a lot of ways. And they, the actor, the stunt actor playing him is very tall. I think he was like 6'5", so he really is an imposing force. Uh, the costume's so really, really terrific. And I like how in the new uh, adaptations of the character, they always stick to the original suit. I, I think it's really smart, and fans would not like it if they like they updated it to like this, like an Iron Man-style st- suit or more... I'm glad uh, they don't mess yeah. with the buttons. It's it's very still to this day in Rogue One 
and in Obi-Wan, it has like that lo-fi retro quality to it from the 70s. They also did that with all the screens in the modern films, which I really like, keeping it that lo-fi analog-esque uh, versions of digital video screens, which I think it's it wouldn't feel right if it was like super clear picture on the digital screens. I, I, I like how they always stick to that that retro feel for the new adaptations. It's designed and inspired by samurai and samurai warrior outfits in the costumes they wore, the armor, the face masks, all of that. It is inspired by that. So Kurosawa and the samurai culture is heavily inspired all over Star Wars. In the actual, the Empire's album, emblem, uh, the symbol of the Empire is actually based upon uh, uh, the emblem of a samurai family oh, that's that really cool. Lucas pulled from. I didn't know that. It's the same like symbol. What I love about Star Wars so much is obviously the archetypes, which we can all get behind. We all recognize them, the heroes and, and the villains, but also the remnants of past stories. You know, Luke's, Sky, Luke's lightsaber, it's kind of like Excalibur and King Arthur in a lot of ways. Uh, much like the Sword and Stone, it also appears to symbolize worthiness. Another example of the lightsaber referencing something like Excalibur is in The Force Awakens. When Rey uses the Force to pull Luke's sword towards her, it zooms right past Kylo Ren, who, you know, you could argue maybe we all thought had more offense Force strength than Rey at the time. But this symbolizes good versus evil here. And obviously the quality of Rey's character kind of chose her. She's worthy of Luke's lightsaber, which is really cool. Also, the building of a team, Lord of the Rings, the Three Musketeers, all that. Yeah, it's terrific. The The Three Musketeers is a great example. Uh, but this this film, it um once it gets going, it really gets going. But what's what I find really impressive is that Lucas uh, created like a ten minute sequence of just two droids wandering around the desert. Yeah, there's hardly not much any happens. human dialogue yeah. in the first twenty minutes of this movie. Yeah, it's very minimal, and it's it, it works. It really does, and I like how he committed to that. Like he was like, you know what, this is important. I'm gonna put this in. There's not much happening, but it's vital to the plot. And I, I, I think it's really commendable to throw that, to keep it in the film as long as the wrong time is for that sequence. Yeah, the opening of the film is obviously uh, Princess Leia's ship being overtaken by the Empire and Darth Vader, and they taking her prisoner, but she gets the plans to R2-D2. But it's R2-D2 and 3CPO doing most of the dialogue in this opening sequence. It's their sequence. movie. <laughs> it's their movie for like 20 minutes. It's so fun. Obviously, we hear Leia speak. We hear Darth Vader speak and some other characters speak, but it's mostly the droids. And then the Jawas uh, on Tatooine, they do the majority of the talking until we get to the the droids being purchased by um, Owen and parents. Ben. Owen and Luke. And yeah. then we finally get going with our human characters and our hum- human storyline. Then we What get about int- this droid? Then we get introduced to Obi-Wan Kenobi, who is a classic mentor and father figure archetype in this movie, played by Alec Guinness, who made bank on this movie that he didn't even want to be in. He negotiated for 2.25% of gross, ended up making $80 million for his three roles of Obi-Wan Kenobi, which is absurd. Obi-Wan Kenobi is a great... Whoa. Great source of exposition for Luke's past and the world where and Lucas explains things here and there, but we're still introduced. We're still vague the first time you watch this for a very long time. There's a lot of mystery involved. He even he even dis he even lies a bit to Luke to keep things from him and like how Darth Vader is actually his father and they were the same person for the first first father being his friend in the Jedi. And Alec Guinness at the time he's really like the only I mean other than the actor who played Tarkin was like the most seasoned and veteran actor in the entire cast and also a very 
well-respected film and theater actor. He had been in a ton of films, and so to have him in the film, I think, was really important for the cast and production to really start taking it seriously. For example, I've read that Harrison Ford and Luke... I mean, Harrison Ford and Mark Hamill were always goofing off on set, except for the days that Alec Guinness was there. I think Alec Guinness is an actor who commanded a lot of respect amongst the crew and cast. And so I think getting him was actually probably very important for the overall culture of the production. And Luke, such an incredible character. Mark Hamill is iconic in the role. And, you know, he's this kid. He's on this moisture farm. He's with his aunt and uncle who have raised him, which he's grateful for. But he doesn't know much about his parents until he learns that his father was a Jedi Knight from Obi-Wan Kenobi. And Obi-Wan Kenobi, after, you know, he saves Luke and the droids from the Jawas, or not, from the uh, the, San- the the Tusken Raiders, um, right? Tusken Raiders? Or the Jawas? Jawas. Jawas. In the, in the, in the uh, valley. The valley, gotcha. Um, and then, you know, Obi-Wan invites Luke on this journey to bring the Death Star plans after he's showing him his father's lightsaber and stuff like that. But, you know, he's loyal to his family. He's loyal to his aunt and uncle. They don't. He wants to go to the, the flight academy, but his uncle won't let him go until the next year. He's upset about it, but he understands. And, you know, he, family comes first. But the Empire do the worst thing they can do, which they don't understand is they, they created an origin story for Luke Skywalker. Origins! Murdering his aunt and uncle and burning down his home while they were looking for the droids, which gave... Luke, the motivation to go with Obi-Wan on this journey, looking at the binary sunset with the emotional music in the background, one of the best scenes in the entire franchise, getting the motivation to not necessarily just seek vengeance, but to stop what is happening to the to the galaxy and to stop the Empire from doing this to other people. But also to do uh, to go on an adventure. Uh, it's something he always wanted, is to, to just get out and see the world and do something and get off the farm. And so the the idea of the sense of discovery, I think, is a big pull for Luke, uh, being able to go on this journey. Uh, the unforeseen and the possibilities are pretty endless, and I think that he's really drawn to that idea in that moment. And I love being on the Death Star, too. You know, they, they think they get to Alderaan, but they're hit by this asteroid storm, which is actually the crumbled bits of Alderaan after what's-his-name destroyed the whole thing. Tarkin. Grand, Grand Marf Tarkin in front of leia which is cold savage cold-blooded and wow that's intense and holy crap. i love i love the sequence where they're approaching the death star and they think it's a moon and then someone's and then they go that's not a moon that's a ship and it's like whoa and then we see this it looks big but then when the ship flies into the hangar and you see yeah, the tiny dot of the ship flying into the hangar and the hangar's massive, but even the hangar is just a tiny part of the overall ship. Then you understand the magnitude of the size of the Death Star. It's really well, well, well perceived, uh, well photographed, and it's really impressive. And it's done perfectly. We have so many great sequences in the Death Star. Uh, Han and Luke are they? They're saving Princess Leia from her chamber, and then they all get stuck in the trash compactor with R two D two and C three PO trying to get them out. While Obi-Wan Kenobi is going to shut down the, the transmitter or whatever it was that pulled them into the ship. And we have a great battle sequence of Obi-Wan and Darth Vader. Their first time seeing each other in a long time. Probably in their final battle where, you know, Darth strikes down Obi-Wan. And 
he ends up making him more powerful than he could ever imagine. And I love this lightsaber fight because a lot of people, you know, when they watch Star Wars, maybe for the first time because they're so used to incredible, modern action, incredible action yeah. sequences and stuff like that. And they've seen mar- they've seen the Star Wars, the lightsaber battles from the prequel trilogy. And those are those are epic. You know, Revenge of the Sith, Sith is an excellent one. Then Qui-Gon, Obi-Wan versus Darth Maul is, is iconic as well. And then sometimes people watch, maybe watch this one for the first time. They're like, ah, it's a pretty good fight, but it's kind of slow. These guys are kind of old. They're not that athletic. <laughs> but the thing with this lightsaber fight, again, it's, it's 1977. These aren't the most athletic actors of all time. And it might seem basic and not super well choreographed. Same thing with the Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker fight. Um, but what's so important about this fight and why it works so well is the emotionality of it the characters the motivations behind it you know you can tell that these two have known each other for so long and just the mystery of what's going to happen if darth does strike him down so it's really about emotionality between the characters versus just intense action sequences and we all we've brought before the great independent production i can't remember what it's called but it's on youtube that it's like a realistic modern filming of the fight between obi-wan and darth vader from a new hope it is super badass i recommend checking it out on youtube it's pretty baller i i don't mind the fight i think it's great because also i mean keep in mind like how dangerous the lightsaber is and so and also samurai films they weren't just like fight act, attack 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 they weren't that's not how they were filming that's not how samurai fights were done they were they were done in moves and if you you like would do an attack and if they parried you jump back because you don't want to get struck down and so it, there's a tentative quality to fighting and constantly being on the defense, even if you lay an attack, that it's not as constant action as people, modern films, make maybe make it seem. Like I watched uh, this little samurai short that a couple of guys made, and it looked great, but like they're just like swinging the swords like crazy. But like samurai battles, they were they took their time, and it was more of like a... Well, duels. It, a duel, like a duel. Um, like think of fencing where it's just very, very intense, uh, very few strikes because you want to strike and you don't want to be struck. So uh, I think that when you look at the fight in that in that regard, you understand why they are – it's not just constant heavy action. Like think of Kill Bill. She fights the crazy 88 and kills them all, most of them. And then she fights Oren Ishii. And example, it's a very example. slow yeah. – patient fight a couple moves here and there yeah. just basically three sequences exactly. and it's over like that it's very similar to that if you think about it yeah it's very it's much more simplistic than people might think it is what's great about this film i think the sets are so sensational i love the stormtrooper outfits even though they're not practical at all for real tactical <laughs> fighting or or armory. But they look cool they look cool yeah um and han and luke and leia they all get together and they're getting the chemistry going leia thinks he's such a creep and we all know what happens when she kisses Luke and stuff like that later on. Um, I love uh, uh, Han Solo talking on the radio. <laughs> I, I'm great. There's Everything's a, great over here. There's a leak. Uh, uh, how are you? <laughs> What's your operation number? Uh, she shoots it. <laughs> I love Luke, it. Look, we're going to have company. <laughs> it's terrific. Uh, it's a lot of fun. The third act of this movie is really, really sensational. and It's just nonstop. It's really well done. It's It's perfectly acted. Uh, the sets, like you said, I, just the 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 now memorable and is part of the DNA of Star Wars is these walls with those the, the the like cutout circles and round rectangles with light on the background. Like 
that is part of like the set of a Star Wars film. If you don't see that in a Star Wars movie, it doesn't feel right. I almost wanted to build one for the set here, but at the yeah. end, it was too much. It's off too brand. specific. It's too like too Star Wars. Yeah, it's too specific. It would have been cool, but I was thinking about it. Yeah, so, like, it would have been sick, but like it would have been like, oh, is this a Star Wars podcast? Yeah, and the third act is bananas because you know they escape the Death Star, they get the plans to the rebellion, and then they're going full locked and loaded. They're taking ships up there to take out the Death Star. They're unable to do it until Luke trusts the Force, t- trusts the the old man speaking to him in his mind. <laughs> the old man, doesn't and Han use, comes back. Yeah, Han. He doesn't use. His it's a great system. moment. It's a great moment where Han's like, "What's the good in spe- What's the good in getting paid if you can't spend it?" Yeah, exactly. And it's, then he and then he leaves. It's great. Great redemption story. He blows up the Death Star, murders a billion people. <laughs> <laughs> See you later. <laughs> and is a hero. And they get, they get their their uh, ceremony. They get Chewbacca doesn't get a medal. How does, why does Chewbacca get a medal? <laughs> I feel so bad for the guy. Yeah, he doesn't get hugged by Leia in uh, Force Awakens. Is it because he's hairy? Maybe he smells. Did you know Chewbacca is about 200 years old when he meets Luke and Leia? Wow, that's old. He's super old. Alive for that's a while. why he's so wise and, and fun. Yeah, he is fun. You know, 200-year-old people are very wise. <laughs> Doesn't get a medal. <laughs> but Star Wars I, I, is a new home. Uh, yeah, I love the ceremony because, like, Han <laughs> and Luke, they get the medals. And then Chewie's just in the background like, great job, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I always feel bad for him. Yeah. But uh, Chewie is great. In I, I like the the concept art that McQuarrie did. It's obviously it would have been impossible to film because the character of Chewie that he imagined, he had like very thin arms and legs, and it was it was very much like a a smaller creature. But there's no way anyone could have like performed as that, and it wouldn't have been like you can make it with CGI nowadays. But like it wouldn't have been possible. So I like I like the final design of this giant hairy being, and he's like looks like he's. Like a, a dog mix, mixed with an alien, it's terrific, and he's he's just wearing just like that that over his shoulder thing, and that's basically all he has for clothing. It's terrific. It's a lot of fun. But the original concept art for the main cast is really interesting, and also R two D 2s original concept art is obviously different. But they did the best they could uh, with limited budget, with the prosthetics and special effects gear that they had back then. The, the funny thing about R2-D2 is Anthony Daniels, the first day he, he went into the suit to test it out, uh, when he first walked as R2-D2, he uh, broke the thigh piece. <laughs> and they couldn't fix it. So for the rest of the film, he had this like crack digging into his thigh whenever he moved. And I think that's the reason why he couldn't really step forward too much. And he like doesn't bend his knees yeah. at all. Yeah, so I mean, they, they did an amazing job. I, it, I love thinking of the film Argo. The, the fake movie kind of reminiscent of Star Wars that they're producing. And it feels – it's because, like, that movie and that script, it's, like, so ridiculous. But it's, all, it's like this movie could have been so bad. This movie could have been terrible. It could have been, like, ended up being seen by no one, liked by nobody. And it could have just been, like, this a weird sci-fi B-movie that just, like, maybe had a cult following. But, like, other than that, not really anything. But it really is a testament to both the Lucas, the production, the visual effects, and then the cast – that really made this a special film uh, an impossible feat to pull off, but somehow uh, they gritted their teeth through it and just managed to pull off the impossible and make just one of the most successful films and most loved franchises in history. And those young directors in the 70s, man, they, they really built Hollywood with so many sensational blockbusters and films. And, you know, thinking about how the four of them were just messing around in, in the studios and stuff like that and with the Jaws set and the shark, it makes me think and realize that, like, 
I was thinking Spielberg is such a talented director, and so aren't all these guys in Lucas, but you got to say that because Jaws was probably the most difficult production ever, you could say <laughs> that's one of the reasons why he became such a great director so fast, and that's why like Close Encounters of a Third Kind, when George Lucas went to visit, is like, oh my God, this guy has it all together so well. Because if if you deal with Jaws on a daily basis, that's just yeah. ne- your next project, you're going to handle Smooth it so sailing. easily. You Especially know when I mean? it makes all the money in the world. But it's so incredible that these guys did this at such young ages, making these enormous blockbusters, such unique, fun ideas, just capturing the the eyes the eyeballs and the love of fans all over the world all over the United States and just what they've created and with Star Wars especially I mean Close Encounters of the Third Kind is awesome but like Star Wars the the footprint of it and it's in the DNA of culture now it's part of everyone and everyone loves yeah. it it's on TV constantly now everyone sees the movies everyone watches the shows it's all over social media all over TikTok Instagram Twitter YouTube Star Wars Star Wars Star Wars I honestly MCU. never would have predicted it. I guess maybe not. I mean, we liked it a lot when we were young. We loved the prequel trilogy so much. I mean, we had the uh, the pod racing on N sixty four. Great like, game, we loved that. Great so game. We were huge fans of Phantom Menace and in Revenge of the Sith. But I mean, I never. But even then, like it, we still had other interests that we liked way more than Star Wars. I'm still yeah, same. I'm still really surprised how many people love Star Wars yeah. and I like almost every day you go out you still see someone with a Star Wars shirt on or something like that yeah it's pretty pretty amazing also it's a it's a cultural thing that is is pretty specific to America on our trip to Europe I didn't see anyone wearing any popular culture shirts at all unless they were American unless they were American <laughs> like it, it was like I saw one Marvel shirt and it was clearly an American so it's it is definitely a cultural thing where we embrace popular culture more than other countries, I think. That is our culture, is yeah. pop culture. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it does make us a little different. I think Australia might be similar, maybe some parts of the UK, but I think America more so than anyone else. Oh, yeah, big time. We don't yeah. have like a rich history in terms of like hundreds and hundreds of years of yeah, culture. Yeah, we're not it's an ancient only, culture. Yeah, yeah, it's not that old, really, if you yeah. think about it in the grand scheme of things. It's yeah. <laughs> like 200. Star Wars will be like our Coliseum. <laughs> <laughs> a digital Coliseum. <laughs> you got anything else for A New Hope? Um, no, I mean, I think this is um, this is my favorite Star Wars movie. I think it's really just because it captures. I thought it's, Empire was. Maybe no one. Maybe watch, let me watch Empire again. I always thought you always said Empire Strikes Back was your favorite. I think I think you're right. Actually, I, I just haven't seen Empire in a while. I think Empire actually, you know, Empire is is my favorite. Well, let's give it a watch this week because yeah. we're doing it next, next week, Monday. Next, next Monday, week. yeah, yeah. Empire actually is a pretty fucking perfect script. And story from start to finish. There's the F bomb. Had to get it in. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, I made it this far. <laughs> but no, I mean, but even when you watch this movie, like so many modern films don't even compare to it to Not this day. Even close. Thanks so no. much for tuning in to Star Wars: A New Hope. Our episode on it solo every Monday for the next month is going to be Star Wars episode. So get tuned for this. get ready for that. Thanks for tuning in around the world. Become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Appreciate you all so much for tuning in around the world. Take care. Bye, y'all. This episode of Raiders of the Lost Podcast was executive produced by our chosen one patrons. Luke Exelston, Tyler McFly, Darren Singleton, Anthony DeMeo, John A. Graz, Becca Keene, Cody Moen, Calvin Cam, and Lauren Smertz. Raiders of the Lost Podcast is a Mirror Image production. Sound mixing done by Jacob Kosler. Opening music by Chase Jackson.